If you have your Bibles with you this morning, or, or your iPad, or iPhone, or some other electronic device, or your bulletin, let me invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts. If you have been with us, you'll know that we've been making our way through this book since the beginning of the year, and uh, we find ourselves this morning at chapter 13, starting with verse 4, and we'll go through to verse 12. So far, our uh, working thesis in the study of this book is that here we have the record of the continuing uh, heavenly-based ministry of Jesus. Uh, It's heavenly-based, but it is carried out by His Holy Spirit-filled and empowered and impelled people who then take the message of Jesus outward from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. In the course of our study, we've seen firstly the establishment and the growth of the early church uh, in Jerusalem. And uh, we saw some of the events that took place as the gospel mission was uh, shedding its Jewish birth clothes. And then in the last couple of messages, we've seen the gospel take hold in another key city, Antioch, even to the point where the church at Antioch has now begun to imitate the church in Jerusalem by becoming a second center from which the gospel mission was being advanced. We then saw the first stage of this last week as the Antiochian church set apart Paul and Barnabas for the mission to which God was calling them. Uh, This morning we're going to pick up with the account right there and um, watch as Paul and Barnabas take off on their first missionary journey, their first missionary adventure. That's where we are. Before we look at what happened, let me invite you to please pray with me. Father in heaven, help us now to, um, to delight in this particular portion of your word to us and for us. Uh, The psalmist talks about delighting in your word and uh, we want to do that. We want to delight in this portion. Uh, You've promised that your word is a light for our path, so please show us this morning how these words illuminate the way ahead for us. More than that, help us to see through these words like we would see through a window to the God who stands behind them and has authored them. That is, help us to see you more clearly. And then uh, in that light, to see ourselves in our world and our life and purpose that much more clearly as well. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, the passage before us this morning is the first of four passages that talk about events from Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey And uh, they went to sort of four areas in the main. And as with all of Luke's writings, these accounts uh, serve a number of purposes. Stop, a a, um, Bible scholar, talks about one of them. He says, these events, that is in this first missionary journey, these events show Paul's versatility with crowds, with individuals, with Jews and Gentiles, with religious people, with irreligious people, with educated and uneducated people and friendly and hostile people. In other words, one of the things that you see in these various accounts that comprise the first missionary journey is a kind of mini-showcase, if you can use that phrase, but a showcase of Paul's ministry and his gifts. And the effect of seeing all these uh, different things is to confirm both Paul's calling to God and his appointment by God to reach the Gentiles. Remember, it's still kind of early days since his conversion from Judaism. And so uh, this is an important part of his establishment as an apostle. So that's an observation about the first missionary journey 
as a whole. Along with that, however, and focusing on the particular passage before us this morning, uh, Acts 13, 4 to 12, uh, which is the first of four accounts that I mentioned. But the main thing that I want you to see this morning is how very early on uh, there is strong opposition to Paul's ministry. We've seen it in other places. Uh, We see this morning that there's strong opposition to Paul's ministry. Uh, Opposition is something that that is a, a characteristic of all legitimate gospel ministry. And it's something that happens whenever there is a genuine work of God going on. You can count on the fact that opposition will be there. With that explanation, let's listen now to the passage and then we'll dive in. Acts 13, starting at verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So here we have Paul and Barnabas and John Mark, set apart in Antioch by the leadership, sent out by the Holy Spirit, so off they go, heading southwest through Seleucia, and then kind of continuing in a southwesterly direction, they sail across the Mediterranean Sea to the island of Cyprus, where Barnabas was from. They land at a place called Salamis, which is on the east coast of the island, and they begin preaching in various synagogues they encountered, and they kind of moved in a westward direction across the island. Now, we're not given any details about the responsiveness that there was to their preaching in these synagogues. Uh, We're only told that eventually they arrive at a city in the far end of the island named Paphos. Upon arriving there, they immediately encounter some opposition in the form of this person who, in the space of just a couple sentences, is described in a a variety of ways. He's a man who apparently wore a lot of hats, uh, who functioned as something like a a court magician, um, perhaps a witch doctor, perhaps astrologer, Something like that, not unlike Merlin was to King Arthur. Regarding this curious character, the scholars write, uh, this man was an apostate Jew who had succumbed to the attractions of heathenism, using his power and influence as an attendant of the proconsul. And his work would likely have involved healing and looking for signs, using formulas and incantations, amulets, and other forms of inducing discernment. Now, those are all speculations, of course, and they're reasonable enough, but the truth is we we can't really say what this man's specific abilities were. But it is almost certain that he was not simply some sort of trickster or 
con artist, but exercise some kind of real, real power, as Marshall strongly suggests. And whatever it was, it must have been enough to hold the attention. Whatever he could do, it kept the attention of the Roman proconsul who is described as an intelligent man. He's no fool. So Sergius Paulus is not crazy and he's thought enough of Elimus to have him in his court. Whatever his credentials were, Elimus figured out very quickly that the arrival of Paul and Barnabas was potentially bad news for him. Suspecting that if his boss was persuaded by what they were saying about Jesus, then maybe Sergius Paulus would wake up one day and decide that he didn't really need a court magician anymore. So concerned about his turf, Elimus opposed Paul and Barnabas. And he did so indirectly by seeking to persuade Sergius Paulus that he should not embrace the Christian faith, but instead turn away from it. Well, when Saul, who is uh, hereafter called Paul in the New Testament, but when he sees what's going on, he confronts this man, Elimus, straight away. And there's several things about how this is presented in the chapter that sets us up to see this confrontation as taking place on something more than a natural plane. For starters, there's this man's name, or at least one of his names, Bar-Jesus. We don't know where the name came from or how he, uh, precisely how he got it, but we do know what the name means. It means son of salvation. Son of salvation, as Peterson puts it, this would seem to be some sort of devilish alternative, alternative to the true Savior, a counterfeit intended to draw attention away from the real thing. Secondly, just before the confrontation takes place, Luke pauses to remind us that this is about to happen, uh, that what is about to happen, this rebuke, is coming from a man, that is Paul, who is filled with the Holy Spirit. He pauses to tell us that. And in the New Testament, whenever you see that phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit, it is typically referring in that moment to a special enabling of the Spirit for a specific task, which again tells us something about the character of this particular opponent. Finally, the rebuke that is given to this man is so strong, the language is so sweeping, that it seems unlikely that Paul was merely addressing an ordinary man who's just being difficult. He calls him the son of the devil and the enemy of all righteousness. He says he is full of deceit and villainy, and he accuses him of making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. So he uses some very strong language to describe this man that he's only just met. Language that seems a little disproportionate if he's just an ordinary guy. So taking all these things together, it seems to me that uh, this man was no ordinary opponent at all, but was a demonically driven opposer of the truth of the gospel and the work of God's kingdom. And just at this point, let me say that the things that Elimus was accused of, deceit, making crooked the straight paths of the Lord... Uh, those same strategies are still employed by Satan in our own day. For example, one writer talks about how the whole notion of spirituality in our day. Spirituality is thrown around a lot, that word. But that notion actually has become a useful tool in Satan's arsenal. In our days, as this one writer, there is a resurgence of spirituality, but it is a spirituality that is devoid of the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. And he's absolutely right. There's a lot of talk about spirituality. 
but it's a kind that's emptied of any meaningful Christian content. People these days are attracted to their own brand of what I would call designer spirituality. It is a spirituality that is loosely defined and amazingly only seems to include those things that a person completely agrees with and equally amazingly does not include any of the things they disagree with. And that's a pretty convenient sort of thing. It's a spirituality that often uses all the right buzzwords like love and grace and understanding and even God. But when you try and pin people down on the meaning of those words, they stubbornly refuse to allow the definition of those things to be grounded in anything outside of themselves and certainly not in something as pedestrian as the revealed truth of Scripture. Or if an attempt is made to ground it in Scripture, the approach used to justify the person's view is such that if it's applied consistently, would make it possible to justify pretty much any position you want in Scripture. Rendering the Scriptures pointless and useless. So Satan's practice of deceit and making straight things crooked that we see here with Elimus, it's still going on all the time. So Paul confronts Elimus. He calls him out. After calling him out, Paul pronounces God's judgment on him which was a temporary blindness. Which, as Bach says, was a good example of a punishment fitting the crime. Darkness of mind led to darkness of sight. You know, I can't help but think that surely this whole event as it played out, you know, would have brought back some memories for Paul, who, as you might recall, had his own temporary blindness at his conversion. Indeed, it is precisely the temporary nature of this judgment that raises the question as to whether or not maybe at some point this man, Elimus, eventually responded to God as Paul did with repentance and faith. We don't know. We can't say. He doesn't become a Christian in this passage. But I don't think we can rule out the possibility that perhaps at some point he may have responded and then speaking of, uh, the, he's, but he's there, he's a, he's a contrast to the proconsul, and it is actually with that contrast that the, the passage finishes out. With the description of this Roman authority figure, Sergius Paulus, responding in faith to the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. Now, it's interesting to see how Luke describes this conversion. It says, he says that uh, Sergius Paulus believed when he saw what occurred, that was this judgment on Elimus. He believed when he saw that and that he believed because he was astonished at their teaching. In other words, God had worked in and through Paul and Barnabas' preaching of the gospel to bring him to a place of conviction. And then the encounter with Elimus was this visual, visual, tangible confirmation of the power of God. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead that they were preaching about. The same power that here overcomes this man uh, Elimus, whose powers Sergius Paulus once respected. And then there's this great irony, as Derek Thomas has noted. He says, the irony here is this. The man who sought to keep the proconsul from the faith actually becomes the instrument by which God brings the proconsul to faith. So what we have here is an encounter right at the outset, right at the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey. An encounter between two kingdoms, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of darkness. And Luke clearly wants his readers to see the way in which, in spite of opposition, 
in spite of even great opposition, the gospel continues victorious. As we saw recently, the church doesn't advance unscathed, but it advances nonetheless. Now, as we see how these events of Acts 13 unfolded for the Apostle Paul, I think it's important to take a step back and see how what happens here in Acts 13 is actually an echo of what happened earlier in Acts 8. In that chapter, if you recall, Philip the Evangelist is ministering in Samaria. He comes upon a person named Simon Magus, who, like Elimus, was some sort of practicing magician and who... Uh, had amazed many people with what he was able to do. Indeed, his reputation was so strong that his powers were regarded, at least by some, as possibly having a divine or semi-divine origin. And so in Acts 8, there's this figure, right? Simon Magus, who represents this counterfeit power. A counterfeit power presenting to those around him an alternative focal point for belief. A kind of supernatural distraction intended to draw people's attention away from the truth of the gospel and to do it at a point and a place in time when it was just starting to take root. However, as the story proceeds, as you may recall, the people turn away from the sideshow that Simon Magus offered and instead they turn to the gospel. Indeed, you see Simon Magus himself make what at first appears to be a genuine profession of faith, but which later on proves to be otherwise, as evidenced by his deeply misguided attempt to purchase from Peter the ability to endow people with the Holy Spirit. But he is, of course, soundly rebuked by Peter in order to repent that he might be delivered from the sin, which clearly still held him captive. So again, in Acts 13, at this crucial point in the history of the gospel's expansion, there's a power encounter that seems to be demonic in origin, and God is victorious. Prior to that, in Acts 8, we saw a similar sort of thing in the encounter with Simon Magus, whose counterfeit power is also shown to be inferior to the power of God. And there'll be further echoes of this later on in the book of Acts. In Acts 16, we'll see it. We'll see it again in Acts 19. So it's in 8, it's in 13, it's in 16... It's in 19. And so what we see when we take in the book of Acts as a whole are these sort of regular installments, these regular encounters that remind us that the kingdom of God is always being opposed, and secondly, that the opposition ultimately is from Satan and all those who wittingly or unwittingly are agents in his schemes. But what we also see in Acts is that the kingdom of God, while regularly and even demonically opposed, is also ultimately victorious. The clear picture that Luke paints for us is, over and over again, of a gospel that is growing, a kingdom that is expanding. You remember Gamaliel's words back in Acts chapter 5. If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Those words are proven true over and over again in the expanding story of Acts as the church grows and develops. And as we continue to think about these things, there's one more power encounter that I want to draw your attention to. It's one that Luke also tells us about, and which you can see if you take a further step back 
to take, not only in the, uh, take in not only the book of Acts, but also the first half of Luke's work. Remember, Luke and, uh, the Gospel of Luke and Acts are one work in the original. And so in the first half of Luke's writing, in the Gospel of Luke, there's another power encounter in Luke chapter 4 that precedes all these. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, sound familiar? Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Why does Satan do this? How does he even have the audacity to even attempt this with Jesus? I'll tell you why. Because the last time he approached a sinless person to try and overthrow God's purposes, it worked. Or so he thought. And so it was that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were taken in by the opposition. And Paul explains all of this very clearly in Romans 5, but Adam... In his sinless humanity served a unique role as a representative head of the human race. Such that what he did affected not only himself but all his posterity. What did he do? He failed. He sinned. He fell. And he took every last one of us down with him. It's the clear teaching of Romans 5. And in the aftermath of all that God said this is bad. This is really bad. There's going to be some terrible consequences. But it will not stand because I'm going to send a deliverer. I'm going to send another Adam, another representative head to undo everything that has just been done, to restore what's been broken, to redeem what has been lost. So what happens next? I'll tell you what happens next. The Old Testament happens. The whole thing. From Abraham through Moses and David and the prophets, the whole thing is one gigantic grand time of preparation for this second Adam to come. And so he does. And his name is Jesus. And here he is in Luke 4. He's just getting started. And there Satan is like clockwork to try once again to overthrow God's designs, to try and get Jesus to sin, to disobey, to doubt his father, to stop trusting God. He does whatever he can do to prevent Jesus from remaining the spotless, sinless Lamb of God by whose sacrifice sin would finally and fully be dealt with forever. But he can't pull it off this time. Even so, he can't pull it off but there's this interesting statement right at the end of the account of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, in Luke 4. Satan has come at him three times to try to get him to stumble, and he fails every time, and he leaves Jesus alone. And the passage says, Luke 4:13, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. You know, an argument could be fairly made that Satan is the most optimistic person in the universe. 
Because in his pride and boundless arrogance, he still thinks he can pull this thing off. And so he leaves, but he's not done. He's looking for an opportune time. Like the time in Mark 8. When Jesus is telling the disciples that he, the Messiah, what he really came to do, which was to die, as opposed to what they always assumed he would do, which was to conquer and destroy. And dear Peter, of course, who else? Dear Peter gets in Jesus' face and he basically tries to correct Jesus' theology. And Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. There was an opportune moment. What about the time in Luke 22 where things are starting to wind down? The end is near, the wolves are circling, and verse 3 says, Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, and he went away and conferred with the chief priest how he might betray Jesus. Or the time later in Luke 22 when Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. He went away from Jesus in the wilderness, but he was still looking for an opportune moment. And he kept finding him. And he found him in Acts, like what happened with Simon Magus in Acts 8, or Elimus in Acts 13, Acts 13, or a young slave girl in Acts 16, seven men in Acts 19. And the thing is this, he's still out there. He is still at it. Ephesians 6 makes this very clear when he tells the Ephesians what they, that what they see is not all there is. That beneath the surface of things, there's this whole other level going on. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So among other things, one of the lessons of Acts 13 is that God's kingdom, God's work, God's church is always opposed. Satan, who has been at it from the very beginning, is still at it, employing any and all means to try and thwart the purposes of God. So what do we do with this? How do we respond? Three things very quickly. And that's a real very quickly, not a preacher's very quickly. (laughs) Firstly, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. 1 Peter 4 and 5. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Humble, and he skips down, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober minded, be watchful. Why? Because he's still out there. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Don't be surprised. Satan is still out there. He is still looking forward to taking every opportunity. Don't be surprised. Secondly, do be prepared. Ephesians 6 again, all the other parts. 
Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Therefore, further down, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. We don't have time to unpack everything there, but let me urge you to go back to that passage in Ephesians 6 this week and read through it and consider and pray about and begin to employ the wonderful resources that God has given us, even as we continue to wrestle against the schemes of the devil. Resources like his word and truth and the righteousness in Christ in which we can rest and the faith in which we can move and our prayers by which we can access our high priest. Thirdly, don't be surprised, do be prepared. And finally, remember, remember the end of the story. I was reading this past week of yet another situation in which a federal judge, a federal judge, mind you, looked a Christian in the eye recently and told him, in essence, if you want to live in this country, it comes at a price. For you, the price is that you have to refrain from using your Christian convictions as a basis for your actions and decisions. That's the cost of your citizenship. I'm not fear-mongering here, but I am saying this. It's heating up out there. The temperature in this culture is rising. The fiery trial of which Peter speaks is not just a theory. But here's the thing. We know how the story ends. We know how all this turns out. The preview of coming attractions that we see in Luke 4 with Jesus' victory over Satan in the wilderness, that is parlayed into the ultimate victory of the cross where sin and death are defeated, where the serpent's head is crushed by the seed of the woman. So much so that Paul, when he looks back on the cross and reflects on it, he says this in 1 Corinthians 15 with justifiable derision and scorn. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He's taunting death. He's saying, where are your trophies? Where are your trophies? They're gone. There's this beautiful passage in Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river, the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. No longer. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and servants will worship him. They'll see his face. And 
his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. There will be no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. It will reign forever. Sometimes I, uh, in the, I, not recently, but over the years, I'll watch a movie with a friend, and uh, I like action movies. Guilty. And uh, in these movies, there's often a hero, and, and if the movie's done well, I kind of like the hero. I identify with him. I, I want the hero to, to, to do well. And, and sometimes if I'm watching a movie with somebody and things get really bad, and it's not looking good for the hero at all, and I just can't take it anymore, I look to the person and say, okay, I, I just got to know right now. I just got to know. Does he make it? <laughs> and if they say yes, and I go, Okay. Because I, I, if I know he's going to make it, then I can deal with this part. He gives us, God gives us the part of the story that is yet to come so we can endure with hope the part we are still in. Don't be surprised. Don't be, I mean, do be prepared. And remember, remember how the story ends. Sometimes that is the hardest thing. Please pray with me. Father, we read about Paul and the opposition he faced, and uh, it seems so long ago, it seems almost not real. A little closer to home, we read about the opposition that your people face around the world right now. We look at things going on in our own culture. You told us, Father, that if we identify with you, then we're going to suffer as your son did. We ought not be surprised. But you've given us a way to be prepared, and you've told us where you're taking us. So, Father, help us to believe and to act and speak in ways that show that we believe it. Encourage us by the truth of the gospel. Embolden us by the truth of the gospel. Give us a burden for the world that doesn't know this gospel. To share it not self-righteously, but in all of our brokenness. We thank you for what you're going to do. We thank you that your mission is advancing, and that you're using even us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll take up an offering now for those that want to support this church and the different ministries that we support together as a church.